sin rather than being like a permanent thing that requires a permanent cure is a thing that like happens again and again. And so both sin and cleansing are like a cycle that happen over and over and over again. Like they're both temporary. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're talking about polyamory, sexuality, and Christianity. We have two very special guests, Reverend Austin Adkinson, a Methodist pastor in Seattle, and J.D. McKelkey, who is a youth minister and theology grad student in Minnesota. And we're talking with them about their takes on the current state of affairs regarding sex and multi-partner relationships in the Christian church. Super exciting. I've been wanting to do this topic with some actual like theologians and pastors as guests for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm really excited that we've found not just one, but two people who were interested in coming on the show to discuss it. Prepare to have your mind blown. I know mine was. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very educational one for Definitely, Emily. definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, Austin, JD, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. Absolutely. My pleasure. So can, uh, I guess we'll do this one at a time. Can both of you introduce yourselves and let our listeners know a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do? Um, I guess I'll just call from the head of the class. Let's start with Austin. Alphabetical order gets me every Exactly. Time. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm Austin Atkinson. I am a United Methodist pastor in Seattle. Um, I um, in the in the church world, in addition to leading uh, a congregation in North Seattle, I'm part of the leadership of the United Methodist Queer Clergy Caucus, which is working for a more inclusive church. Um, and also outside the church world, I um, I'm on the board of directors at the Paneros Foundation here in Seattle. And specifically, I'm mostly working with um, our Consent Academy project, which is a new launch in the last. Oh, year and a half or so where we're uh, working on bringing consent education to a variety of different groups. Nice. Very cool. And how about you, J.D.? I'm J.D. McElkey, and I'm from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm a grad student in theology at Luther Seminary in St. Paul. I'm also a high school youth minister at a Lutheran church, a liberal Lutheran church here in many uh, the Twin Cities. And so my current projects are around sexuality education with uh, youth in the Church, Comprehensive Progressive Sexual Education, and also creating a uh, kinky doctrine of sin is my uh, biggest project right now. So. And is that a, like a book or a, a paper or yeah, a site? What does that what? mean? <laughs> it's just a long paper. So what I'm doing is <laughs> I'm putting the Christian symbols into different realms of um, ethics in the BDSM communities. So. Oh, interesting. Fascinating. I'd love to talk more about that. At some point, yeah. I don't know if we'll have time for it what today. Are but Christian symbols. Say it again. Did you say the word Christian yeah. symbols? It's just what is the. It, it's like a theological jargon for, um, 
like the narrative of the Bible, the things that you hear. It's like, um, shake, you know, like Shakespeare, people know these quotes from Shakespeare, right? People yes. know these quotes from the Bible, right? We have these ideas of what Christianity is within our culture and within, you know, Western literature. Um, and some it's those kinds too. of like themes. Yeah, some of us, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's those themes that um, I kind of, it's Christian symbols, pulling those out. Okay, I see. If that's helpful at all. I think Emily no, was totally. imagining like runes and. and <laughs> no, I was. I was like, are there different oh, yeah. symbols? <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> I don't know, Austin, you you looked like you had something yeah. to say as well. Yeah, I just wanted to say to JD that there's an article I should point him to that just got written by a friend of mine, uh, um, I think Derek Claremont, um, that is right in that area. So it's something that you should be aware of. We can talk about that after. Thank you for that. Yeah. Let me just say, I just have to interject to say that this is so exciting. Um, it's the first time for us to have multiple guests. If I had my way, we would have like five different faith leaders on a panel that we'd be recording right now. That'd be a little bit of chaos for a podcast. Um, but it's just really nice to be able to at least get like some variety of perspective here. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so, Em, uh, as our as our sort of designated person who doesn't know anything about any of this, uh, can you start <laughs> yeah. us off? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm definitely, as you can see, and anyone who knows anything about this podcast knows that I'm like the noob when it comes to all things like religion or Christianity or the Bible or anything. Um, but from my like super limited knowledge, it does seem like things like the nuclear family or monogamy or fidelity are all like super important parts of a religious lifestyle. So, so... I don't really understand how something like polyamory, which for all intents and purposes kind of seems like in direct opposition to all those things or, or parts of all those things, like how would polyamory in any way be okay to a religious person, let alone like pastors? <laughs> we stumped him already. I know, right? So just, <laughs> right out the gate. Just straight for the jugular. Um, no, um, yeah, I would say it's absolutely a minority viewpoint within most of Christianity today. And, uh, I, and no one person can speak for all of Christianity. There are lots of different flavors and varieties, but even within each denomination, there would be, um, there's very, actually very little discussion around um, polyamory in most churches. Most sexual ethics that are being debated in most denominations right now um, are just around um, homosexuality. At least in my denomination, the, the prohibitions that we're fighting against are self-avowed practicing homosexuals. The people who want to be discriminatory, don't even know the range of things that they should be trying to prohibit. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, homosexuality is the level of debate that's happening right here. There are a lot of pastors, though, that have a lot more nuanced perceptions um, or uh, nuanced perspectives and um, will work with, there are a lot of pastors out there that will work with people where they are and not see this as a primary emphasis um, and there were a lot of layers to the question and I'm not really sure I'm, I'm going to hit all of them, but the nuclear family was kind of where it kind of got started as a lead. Um, and that is certainly a value that a lot of Christianity is held on to. Um, mm-hmm. um, but its origins are not really something that comes from any of the passages directly from Jesus, um, or, yeah. um, from other places. In fact, most of the places where family stuff and gender roles within the family come in, um, are much later writings that got attributed to the Apostle Paul 
after the fact and were really rooted in um, uh, the Roman household code. So it was a secular basis for the nuclear family idea um, being passed along. Um, and as Christianity reached into the beyond Judaism and into the more into the Hellenistic world, that value and the patriarchy stuff kind of crept into some of the writing. But uh, we're actually coming up on a lectionary cycle and Emily, for you, the lectionary word, um, and actually even maybe for... Oh, yes, for us too, because I um, that just sailed no, right Lectionary is... A, oh, you lectionary got it? Is a, you were saying electionary. Yeah. I voted. Yeah, you That's voted today. You um, <laughs> this is not what you were saying. But the lectionary, um, the lectionary is a scheduled set of readings um, that churches do on a three-year cycle to hit most of the Bible in church readings over the course of three years. So um, most mainline churches are going to be preaching on similar scriptures any given Sunday. Um, and really? This coming, and so this coming Sunday, um, one of the scriptures is actually about um, Jesus is teaching in a group. Um, and somebody says, hey, Jesus, your, um, your mother and your brothers are here. Don't you want to go talk to them? And he says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? All those um, who I'm going to butcher the exact quote here because um, <laughs> I'm not that kind of Christian. Um, but basically saying um, all those who honor my father in heaven are my the translations I would use are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but it was I think the actual Greek is brothers. Um, but he's, so Jesus was actually saying our family is those who we are doing faithful love and working toward hmm. the kingdom of God with. Um, so that, so Jesus, which is not to say that Jesus was anti-family, although his mother and his brothers probably would have been hurt to hear him say that it was a much more expansive <laughs> idea yeah. of what, of, um, of who we love and care for is a large part of Jesus's message. And so I, I, it's absolutely true that most of Christian history has focused on nuclear family, but I would say that's a secular value that got religified. Is that a word? Mm, <laughs> um, yeah. It um, is now. <laughs> <laughs> um, rather than the other way around. Um, and so um, a lot of, and, and there's a lot of Christianity in general, um, a lot and a lot of assumptions about what it means to be Christian um, that have come through the historical thing and rather than what Jesus was really focused on. And so mm. um, when I do things that challenge, challenge people's concepts of what the Bible really says or doesn't say, um, you have to look a lot at the context when, of what each piece of writing, what was happening around it um, and not just take it at face value. So um, I bring a lot of nuance into it and that's how I, how I get at it. So there's, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that's going to say polyamory is good because there was no such um, phrase for that. Um, right. but, um, but challenges of who we love and who we're supposed to love and really loving everyone is at the center of things, um, mm. through all of Jesus's teachings. And that's what I try to focus on. Um, so I'm less of a rigid, here are the rules that Christians are supposed to follow and more, uh, focused on, um, how do we focus on, um, the loving the people around us better and seeking justice and caring for, um, making the world more like God intends it to be. Right, right. Lovely. Right. Um, JD, do you have anything to say? No. Yeah, the thing I would say is, so you mentioned, you know, this uh, um, religious lifestyle. It, is it compatible with polyamory? I think when, um, at least in Minnesota, maybe, I'm not sure if it's the same on the, on the West Coast, but when I hear um, 
ideas or discourse about um, Christian religious lifestyle, it's always co-opted by the religious right, by mm-hmm. conservative, you know, by conservative uh, Christians. And so even when you start talking about the religious lifestyle, you know, who th- there's a lot of variance, I would say, within the denominations, um, within the different parts of Christianity about what constitutes a religious lifestyle or if we give a shit about a religious lifestyle. Um, I'd also say that, like, in the history of Christianity, there was a lot of, um, particularly in the monasteries, in the monastic tradition, that's where um, super cool Christians, you know, they would leave their mother and father, they would take up poverty, chastity, obedience, or something like that, and they'd just hang out in a community, they'd pray all day, that's monastic life. And so in that monastic life, um, there's particularly um, uh, in medieval times, there's a lot of talk about um, sexual relationships in the, in monastic life. And it was not, I mean, it's not even uncommon at all, even today. Um, so that in monastic life to have sexual relations with each other. Um, and so, in Christian in Christianity, um, or at least the Christian history of Christianity, the best you know religious lifestyle was this monastic life. Yet they are they are the ones that are um, polyamorous in many ways. Um, and they were there's I could say a lot more about that, but I'll stop. <laughs> right, and I can you. <laughs> no, that's great. It's great. I can I can tell that you're working on your PhD right now and on your thesis because you're. I could tell your brain just has like too much information. It's like how do I filter this all down? I know. So forgive me if I'm being too precise because like I just it's it's yeah. I'm like. Well, can you give us a citation that. for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll expect a bibliography at the end yeah, of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. So, so actually kind of related to, to what both of you talked about, um, I actually wanted to take us kind of back a second, um, rather than talking about polyamory, but to talk about mm-hmm. kind of the more current debate as Austin was pointing out about homosexuality and, um, that I think when, when people start thinking about, you know, whatever it is, you know, family values or whatever about the Bible, that I feel like where most people's mind goes is to homosexuality. Like, is, is that okay? Or is it not? I feel like maybe when I was a kid, that debate would have been more just focused on like, don't cheat. Um, but I feel Mm -hmm. like now when you bring that up immediately where people's minds go is homosexuality. And for me, this was something that I got super fascinated with in college. Um, and we had a, um, a guest speaker come to our school and he was a former Catholic priest who was giving this presentation on what the Bible really says about homosexuality and, you know, talked about things like how Jesus never says anything about it. And in fact, perhaps even helped cure, uh, the, the centurion's, um, you know, servant boy who at that time most likely would have also had a sexual relationship with him. Like kind of point out little things like that, as well as, looking at some of the specific wording used in the Old Testament about, you know, what, like that it's an abomination for a man to lie with another man, like those sorts of things kind of went into mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the nitty gritty about all of that, I guess. Um, 
And I guess I was just wondering if uh, – I feel like I gave a, a super quick little summary there. <laughs> if you could kind of bring us up to speed on like what – is that kind of what the debate is centered around right now within the denominations, uh, you know, at least the ones in the United States that you guys are part of? Um, like is is that still the debate about like these specific wordings or has it moved to some other place than that? I could speak to like the theological shit that's going on, but – um, Austin might be more equipped to deal with like what's actually going on in the church because my church is super gay. We've been marrying same sex couples for since like the eighties. So wow. I'm not so, exactly like, no problem. So like, yeah. Right. So Austin might be better to talk about like socially what's going on in the church. Um, but. Yeah. And um, well, maybe uh, <laughs> um, because every denomination and every well, and then there are a lot of churches that are non-denominational as well. So every situation is going to, whether it's denominational or congregational, is going to have its own area of focus on it. And I would say it, it's most of it's happening at the congregational level. And it usually starts with caring for individuals who are part of that congregation. There are people who, um, you know, a child grows up and comes out um, whose family has been a long part of the church. And it, and it forces congregations to rethink their values and then they go through and then there's already good solid research that has been that has gone through that's looked at the nuance of all of those passages that um that you were referring to earlier jace um um we have solid academics behind how that doesn't fit with our um none of that is a real condemnation of what would of a loving committed same-sex couple um, in our current context. The, the condemnations are, it, it's not a direct fit. You can't lift an ancient concept and shove it into the modern era. So, mm-hmm. um, and most of those things are in the Old Testament, by the way, um, yeah. and which we understand a lot of the laws that Christians are not required to follow that, um, that came through ancient Judaism or even pre- Judaism, Judean religion, um, most of those prohibitions are understood to be extended by the grace that we have from Christ that we don't have to follow the letter of the law from those places. I see the evangelicals nodding a little bit from memory. Of talk about grace. And so that gets us past the um, a lot of the Old Testament, and there's um, some New Testament passages, some things that are just bad translation and other things that we could, I could go in and we call them the clobber passages um, in the progressive circles and the texts of terror. Yes. Um, so text we could, I mean, terror. I mean, I would, I would guess both of us are well enough versed that we could go through those one by one, but uh, we could also point to written materials out there that people could just sit and read on their own and not run through them one-on-one. But it's, it's more about understanding context and nuance um, in the same ways that a lot of churches have moved past and, and understand women clergy, where it was thought to be that the Bible excluded that uh, as well. We've moved past it on that, but the, um, but the forefront of the debate is around um, sexual orientation. And, but really what it tends to come down to is there are large sections of the church um, that get focused on the Bible being the literal word of God and inerrant, and you can't change it in any way, and it's absolute. Um, that's usually done in a not really in, in a, in not with integrity on my from my point of view, mm-hmm. but that's the claim uh, on the one side. And then there's large groups of Christianity that says that we really respect the Bible by giving it the attention um, and 
the study and the and understanding the nuance in it um, by giving it that kind of respect, we're actually lifting it up in a way that doesn't just leave it as something that, um, uh, anyway, so it's, it's a debate about how it's, it's really more a debate about how we understand the nature of the Bible more than homosexuality, but this is the place where it's really coming to a fore in a lot mm-hmm. of Christian circles these days. Um, so as far as applying like a similar, like a similar way of looking at this to polyamory, the only thing that I've found about this at all are um, there's one sermon that I that someone sent me a recording of online and like a couple writings that are part of the United Church of Christ um, that talk about polyamory. And one of them, um, one of the the pastors comes out as being polyamorous um, and that the other one, there's like two of them doing this particular uh, sermon and the other one talks about, you know, maybe a few passages in the Bible talking about, um, you know, sort of making parallels to polyamory with the way that God loves us and, you know, the way that God teaches mm-hmm. us to love. I was just curious, like you said, that the debate isn't really on this, but it seemed like mm-hmm. the research was being done about homosexuality before the debate even like really started being the thing that's happening. I, is there a similar thing with polyamory or non-monogamy or, or other types of non-traditional relationships that people are starting to, to like critically analyze scripture with that in mind? I would say totally. I mean, there's definitely, um, and I could point you to some academics that are writing about polyamory within um, Christian theology, at least, and using the Bible. And that's the big kind of claim that they're making is that God's love is very polyamorous in nature, right? Um, Christ is, there's this, the polyamorous Christ is kind of this new term that's, hmm. that's gaining traction, um, which I'm all for. I mean, as, as a anecdote to like give that some like, um, bump to it. So like, it, you know, of communion, you know, mm-hmm. this is my body broken for you, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so in Jewish tradition, so there's this, um, idea of, proposing to when you propose to somebody right the in this situation it's man and woman um unfortunately but man you know the guy gives this cup of wine and he says this is my covenant for you and if the girl drinks it well then she's accepting the proposal and so some would say that um the last supper is jesus is proposing to the to 12 guys right and so it's very gay and very polyamorous, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Emma, but, I sorry, sorry, Emma. I feel like your your face was like so shocked when you realized how many drinks you've accepted from strange men. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, I'm glad I'm not Jewish. I'm Jewish. <laughs> oh my god. Just like anyone being like, well, I'm going to yeah. use that now. <laughs> Here's a drink. We're married now. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I sorry. Like yeah, cut please you continue, JD. <laughs> <laughs> no, now, obviously, I'm gonna like I'm gonna say that there are a lot of symbols going on in in the Last Supper, right? But that's right. just one of them. Um, and there's this common symbol um, in the Bible and in a lot of New Testament theology that says that the church is the bride of Christ, right? right. Um, that we and even so, it's very interesting to me. So in the evangelical world. There are um, a lot of the songs and prayers that are used 
talk about there's this very intimate individualistic relationship that people have with God, um, and it's very erotic sometimes, right? I mean, my favorite example is this old um, song. It's not old, I guess, but it's like 90s or the, the – um, but there's in the secret in the quiet place, you know, I want to touch you. I want to. I know that song. I know that song. Oh my God. uh, Yeah. Right. And like, you stop and think, well, that's kind of erotic. Right. So, (laughs) um, and yet it's evangelical. So it's that are doing that, which is fine. But (laughs) there are queer theologians that are taking that um, and saying, well, maybe we have this erotic thing going on with Jesus because I mean, also think about it. This is my body, right? You're taking somebody's body in your mouth, right? And so there's some, um, like, phallic. Pretty weapons. erotic. I know, yeah. right? It's yes. either erotic or cannibalism. So <laughs> yeah, I'll I know. Yeah. You know, and who's to say not both? But. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So, but either way, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But, but yeah, so there's this idea of the polyamorous place that's, that's really becoming, that's gaining traction. But usually... The safe way to say it is that God loves everybody, and um, well, this isn't very safe to say, but um, God's a total slut, right? And so, um, <laughs> in that sense, so sorry, I'm well, sorry, sorry. Just, I just have to say, oh no, that, that like, is funny. Yeah. The, <laughs> there's like the 12 year old Christian girl in me is still alive, apparently, because there's so a part of me that's like. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think she was still in there, but she is. That's Sorry, please go ahead. Fun to find. Yeah. <laughs> it comes out sometimes, Dedeker. It does come out sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, right, it, w- that actually brought to mind um, the part from the Bible where, um, you know, the, the, the Pharisees, I think, are quizzing Jesus, trying to catch him up on things. And they ask the question about, um, you know, if a, a woman is married to a man and he dies and then she marries his brother and then he dies and then she marries the next brother and whatever. She ends up during her life being married to all the brothers because that's what you would do. And yeah. then when she died, who would be her husband in heaven? Um, wow, you've and- read your Bible, my gosh. He, he was almost going <laughs> to go like, to seminary. Yeah. I I, what? I, yeah, oh, I came very close to, to <laughs> like basically sort of very life. different life you're leading. Now, I know, and Jace. here you are running a polyamory um, podcast. You know, I actually think it's more similar than. Well, we could discuss that another time. <laughs> Amen. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mark 12 is what you were. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Whoa, that's impressive, too. <laughs> It's, 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 it's fine. I'm sure a lot of people know that. I'm just like, how? There's a lot of a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of verses. Well, hang on. you and were I'm leading just, up to something. I, I was just that verse. I was just curious. Is is that one of the ones that comes up? Are there are there others like that that I that I've maybe missed out on to, to kind of bring it back to polyamory, which is uh, something I was curious mm-hmm. to hear both of you talk about on this show because, I, like I said, it's something that I don't feel like is being talked about as much as the homosexuality mm-hmm. thing. I, and I don't know if that passage is being done in academic circles um, around this. Not like a no. Um, no, but maybe fruitful for somebody's new paper if they're looking well, for a project. You know, um, Robert Robert Goss, a career theologian, he did okay. around that. So I like I like. And could you okay. also because I'm 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 doubting my scripture quoting now, but so 
they ask him the question, like, who of these would be her no. husband after, you know, in, in heaven or in the kingdom of God or whatever. And who is it? Jesus' answer was that it doesn't matter because you're kind of. Oh. I can yeah, like, read it for you. Yeah. Okay. Because well. answer Jesus. I'm, I have my Bible on. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's been doing um, their sword drills over here. Right. Look at some Mark. <laughs> Smart drills. Smart drills. Twenty-four is where Jesus has this answer. Right? Jesus said to them, "Is not this the reason you are wrong? That you, um, oh shit. Oh no, this is it. For when they raised from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in a story about the bush?" Oh God! I love when Jesus says bush. The bush of God. I, I know, right? I don't think of the burning bush. I think of something else. But yeah, um, I think. But of the, the point the is, discussion. yeah, yeah. The point is, is that there's no marriage in heaven, right? Right. And conservative circles like make marriage to be like this big thing. And yeah, you, there's no marriage in heaven. I uh, no, no. Yeah, it's just one big poly party. It is. <laughs> cool. I, I think it's more just At like least. one big like solo poly party where it's like yeah, you, exactly. you don't have to be with anybody. You know? Yeah, I guess I guess I always kind of thought of Jesus's answer being a little more Buddhist of like, oh. well, like you become one with all things, and there is no separation yeah, I mean, between one thing and another. So that makes sense. That's yeah. probably a little closer to it. It's like it's not about the body at that point. Um, right. Is, I think more of what Jesus's answer is roughly yeah. around, but yeah, but it's like it's but then it's still it's about we are at the point where the human barriers that prevent us from loving each other, that are mm-hmm. things that we should be trying to work to break down here. That's already broken down in the concept of heaven. Uh, and so uh-huh. um, if we're, so Jesus is kind of saying we're beyond that. It's like, and we would get a similar question now because we don't have that Levitical marriage concept where the widow has to be cared for by the siblings. No. Um, mm. um, but you know, you hear people ask questions it's like, I was an amputee. Do I get my arm back when I'm in heaven? And like, I think mm. Jesus' answer would be pretty similar. It's like you're thinking in the wrong areas. It's more about a much more broad love than mm. um, about this level of human focused detail. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it's it's yeah. kind of like we're past. The, yeah, we're past the point of having this like individual identity that is separate from God to a mm-hmm. certain regard, and like we kind of get closer to, I guess, that oneness or that something mm. like that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I know you have you have some other questions. Yeah. I was just curious if there were any other sort of hit passages. Some that, hit, some, that... <laughs> some top These ten hits, hits and verses. Before we move away from this particular piece about, like, I was, you know, I was talking about the more generalized love, the thing that we're, we should be striving for as Christians. For me, it's like not even the finding the Bible passages that might justify it. It's more about. I feel like. There are enough barriers that keep people from finding a religious community that will help them have that kind of growth, that that is something that so many people need. And to pick, and even if you did think it was sinful, to pick one thing and to focus on sexuality, and I would do that in broad strokes too, because there are a lot of folks that would condemn um, premarital sex, and we know how much that's happening out there. Um, like, right. um, um, that, 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 that there's just so much focus that, that if people are having loving consensual sexual practices and they're not doing it as a way of thinking they're rebelling against the church, that they're rebelling against God. Like where is their heart while they're at it? That if they're really just focusing on caring for other people, like why should that be 
a barrier to somebody being able to get the things that we say that we value out of our faith and the way it's helped us in our own lives. I don't want to break that away for anybody, and I'm not going to focus on... And, and so I don't think that homosexuality or um, any... And not just homosexuality, I'm just caught in the language of the church again. But um, I don't think that sexual orientation is a barrier. I don't think that um, any sexual identity is in and of itself sinful, um, but but how we engage in it. And so, but even if I did think it was a sin, I wouldn't focus on one sin and make that something that precludes somebody from being able to try to grow in all of these other areas. We're all on our own paths uh, spiritually. <clears throat> and if somebody's at a different starting point um, than, where, than where you are... I, that to me is more about how why we break away the, those barriers rather than um, find a, a scripture that says, oh, that makes it okay. Um, mm-hmm. It's how do we live into that loving example that Jesus set more than the more than the letter of the law? Yeah, I would also say that. Um, so you mentioned like sin. Um, there's not specific passages that say it's sinful necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our idea, like so, what? Um, Christians in the West think about sin is very unbiblical, at least in my opinion. Um, the ideas of sin in the Bible are more about there's this other thing, right, going on. It's not like an action you do; it's something that's done to you, right? It's um, like in the old in Leviticus again. There's this idea where they put all their sins under this goat, and the goat just goes into the wilderness and dies. That it's like it's it's um, it's not like um, oh, you did this bad thing, so you sucked up, uh, sucked up, you fucked up, and so you're sinful. It's 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 more nuanced than that, um, and it's a totally different way of of. of it's not an ethics. Um, that's one thing huh. I would say. Sin does not equal ethics in the Bible. Sin is something else, and so it's hard to say. Oh, is polyamory a sin in the Bible? Well, I don't know. Who cares? But um, because sin is. Um, in the Bible is very different than in ethics. So, hmm. Gosh, I have like 5 billion things that I yeah, want to say yeah, in yeah. response to that. Um, <laughs> one of them being to build off, build, well, okay, to build off what. <laughs> so that, that is literally where scapegoat comes from, by the way. That, yeah. But, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, a quick side note. I just love how that, that JD and Austin will be talking about things and I'll see in the video here that Dedeker and I are like, mm, right. And Emily's just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, <laughs> her face is just like... Oh my god, yes. <laughs> sorry, my, sorry. Okay. Please I didn't go know about goats and sex. Yeah, you're going to have to get rid, get used to the goat and the whole animal sacrifice oh, thing, yeah. Emily. Yeah. It happens a lot. And For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy. 
or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. I want to start talking a little bit more about, um, I think, sex a little bit generally outside of just the specifics of homosexuality mm-hmm. or multi-partner relationships or things like that. Um, because obviously, you know, the Christian church has not had a great track record with sexual moralism or sex positivity. Um, and I was wondering, and especially, you know, Austin, since it seems like you're really in the thick of this, um, you know, are the both of you aware of if that's changing or if that's evolving, like the stance of the Christian church on the way that it handles just sex in general. Um, well, you know, of, of like, I, I don't know. I kind of lost the thread on what I'm trying to ask, but kind of like what's the stance now on like what healthy sexuality is while still living a Christian lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm in the thick of it, I guess. And I'm uh, <laughs> actively working on trying to break that down. I don't, I mean, it's, um, I think that mostly it's something that, a lot of church folks have gotten really good at not talking about, um, partly because they know it's divisive. Um, and so um, I think, um, and, and that that's going to vary from context to context. And so by not talking about it in some contexts, it, it upholds the status quo. And in other ones, it kind of holds to kind of more of a libertarian live and let live um, kind of um, mindset. Um, but I would say it's, you know, it's actively part of the tension that it's around, but I don't know how, it would be hard to say how widely that is being shifted, but I am, I'm part of trying to actively break down what I think is harmful sexual ethics that, um, particularly when all we tend to focus on saying in most churches is that it's, that it's okay after marriage, but bad before marriage. And that's really all we're Mm -hmm. going to talk about. Um, And so for me, breaking it down, it's like, that leaves a whole lot of what people around us are actually engaging in the way that they live their lives, where we have ceded ground to have no moral authority whatsoever. Um, when the church could also be focusing and saying rape is bad, sexual mm-hmm. assault is wrong. Um, um, yeah. And so um, trying to get and move it toward how do we have, how do we be able to have a voice? And I think it's also a, a large part of what does keep people away from church is that they know that, that, their lives, straight, queer, whatever, um, would not, they they think would not be approved of in a church, and that alone means that the church is so hypocritical that they don't um, that they wouldn't be able to find a place there. So I'm trying to find ways of being able to say, um, without pulling the carpet out from under some folks, um, that um, that really it it doesn't matter who you're sleeping with, but how you take care of those people. Mm-hmm. Creature, um, but but I'm on I'm, I'm, I'm way on I'm on the outside of that argument, but I'm trying to um, help make it more mainstream. And mostly, I think a lot of more progressive clergy are just afraid have similar thoughts, but are don't really have the courage to to jump in and put themselves on the line for advocating something that's going to shake the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and so it's that which makes it really hard to find for folks to find a church where they might feel accepted because it's something that is intentionally kept below the surface. Right. Right. And I, um, so I would say, um, 
I'm in grad school at a seminary, right? So the majority of people there are going to be a pastor someday. And a lot of my friends there um, are very progressive when it comes to sex. They're very against what at least um, scholars refer to as erotophobia, right? And so there, there's, I think there, at least in this ELCA liberal Lutheran wing of the church, um, there I, I can see at least in the leadership of the shift moving from um, caring so much about where you put your genitals, um, a change from that to, oh, like I, I value consent and I want to treat this person in front of me as a subject and not an object. Um, and so that's, so I, I see that shift changing, but it's hard. So like in my denomination that I work in, um, that the ELCA, the liberal Lutherans, um, there's this guideline for pastors, um, basically that says you can't have sex outside of marriage, right? Very seems kind of obvious to a lot of people that pastors shouldn't do that. Um, but there are there's a groundswell of people saying that well, the focus shouldn't be on um, sex before marriage. The, the focus should be on things like consent and everything after. Mm. Mm. Wow, yeah, I mean, that would be a fantastic shift to see just in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but change is slow, and change in church is slower. Oh yeah. God, yeah, of course. Well, it's I I um maybe you've heard something similar. I remember. Uh, Years ago, um, gosh, it was probably like 10 years ago or something, a friend of mine who who did end up going into seminary after we went to college together, and he is a pastor now, he talked to me about um, some statistic, and I'm fudging these numbers, but it was something like 90% of pastors were raised in like a megachurch type setting, like the majority of Christians are brought up in those because they're so big but that 90% of pastors end up being pastors in much smaller churches. Hmm. So there's this sort of interesting thing where like, well, obviously most of the pastor jobs are in all of these smaller churches, yet most of the Christians sort of being brought up are in these more mega churches. Hmm. I wasn't sure if you'd heard anything like that, but I could see that being Hmm. a way that kind of slows down that change in a way if the people still in those more mega churches aren't the ones changing and it's just all the ones in these smaller churches that that it would sort of slow down the evolution of who the new Christians are being brought up, at least mm. statistically. Mm. But I don't, I don't know what exactly the, the statistics were. I just remember it being an overwhelming number yeah. is one, and then they end up in the other. Mm. Interesting. Anyway, I, fun little I don't know anything about that particular statistic. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, maybe it's, yeah, maybe maybe it's all crap. It's I don't know. Chase. Cool. But, no worries. but one of the other things that impedes, that impedes um, progress in terms of what pastors talk about is also that a lot of pastors went to grad school a long time ago and mm-hmm. grad school. And, and so beyond sexuality, just in general, all of kind of the things that is, that are better understandings of things that have come up, um, you know, pastors have been out of school for a long time and they haven't, they're not seeing what some of the newest um, academic mm-hmm. work is, is putting out. And also they're still afraid to talk to their congregations about what was edgy, even when they were in grad school. And it's, and there's, mm-hmm. Clearly, listening to JD talk, there's a lot more edgy theology happening now than there was 50 years ago. But they don't. But but they're still scared of the of the theology they learned 50 years ago, and they're still kind of right. preaching the wow. what, can my, what what can I do without getting run out of my job? Like what can mm-hmm. how far can I stretch people without um, without alienating myself? And so that's a fear that a lot of pastors have. Um, if you're in an environment where they're um, 
where they're not looking to be more expansive. I'm fortunate enough to be in a space where people are hungry for new information and new ways of thinking about things. But that's not the that's not the norm in a lot of church settings. Um, right. And a lot of pastors are more concerned about job security than about um, about bringing change. Yeah, right. I would also say um, within like the Bible, for instance, as far as um, as erotophobia or sex before marriage, all these things go back to what we think of in our culture of as virginity. So in the Bible, virginity is only ever referred to women, right? and that's only because huh. right. um, virginity is an economic thing in the ancient world. It's not a sexual thing. I mean, obviously, it, it refers to sex, but um, virginity was always uh, um, put on women because men, I mean, in many senses, owned women, right? And so a virgin is much more economically valuable to a man than somebody who's not a virgin because you want your offspring. You want to know that the babies that come out of this woman, you want to know that they're yours, Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's economic implications of that. And so in the Bible, at least, in my opinion, there is not this overwhelming consensus that sex is bad or mm-hmm. sex before marriage is bad. Um, it's my opinion that in the Bible, sexuality um, is many times negatively tied to economics um, mm-hmm. in some really harmful ways. And so it's hard to just put our ideas of what sexual ethics are onto the Bible or come bring them out of the Bible because of how much economics was mm-hmm. tied up in it all. Well, I feel like that actually leads into my next question yeah. pretty well, which is that, as you know, we recently recorded a fun and pretty silly episode talking about instances of polyamory <laughs> in the Bible, um, which, you know, mostly turned out to be some maybe troublesome and maybe non-consensual polygamy, um, at least, you know, mostly in the Old Testament. And it was so interesting that when I was researching this, that there's so many, Mm -hmm. there's, well, there seemed to be kind of like three camps of interpretation that I saw that either, I think more extreme camp where either people interpret it as like, well, clearly this is what God established as like the ideal setup for is for a man to have multiple wives. And so that's what everyone should be aiming for. Um, Or people like people interpret it as well, you know, everyone who was polygamous in the Bible, something bad happened to them. So God is clearly trying to send a message that... I did see that one too. Yeah, yeah. that this is not yeah. the way that we should, that it should be just one man, one mm-hmm. woman or whatever. Or people kind of take the route of like, oh, I was, you know, that's what people did at the time and we don't need to worry about it. Um, is there any other kind of interpretation that people are, are throwing up there in talking about these instances of polygamy in the Bible? Or is there any other conversation around that right now? JD? Um, I would say that, um, so a simple way to think about it, when you read the Bible, the Bible isn't always saying this is the way things should be, right? Um, so you have to ask the question, is the story you're reading, is is the parable or teaching you're reading, talking about the way things are, hmm. or is it talking about the way things should be? And so I think of, so there's this story in Genesis 34 where this um, woman named Dinah, who had this, uh, not have any voice at all um, in the mm-hmm. in the narrative. She's raped by this man. And, um, and in the Hebrew, there's this word defiled. I forget the actual Hebrew word, but, but the, but the, um, this, this word defiled is not put on her rapist, right? It's put on her. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so 
and, and there's a lot of other horrible things about that story that I'm not even going to go into. But so I would say that that is a depiction of the way things are and not the way things should be. Right. Mm. Um, and so when we read the Bible, we have to ask that question. I think uh, we get those screwed up. Um, mm. And so that probably doesn't answer your question at all. But, no, um, no, it, make, it makes sense fine. to me. It, yeah. It's actually very related to a conversation that three of us were just having the other day because um, we've we've been uh, recording some episodes for a new podcast that we're putting together where we're reading through the whole Bible. Um, oh, and, wow. Yeah, That's it's going to take a number of years. Um, it's ambitious. But reading through it so Emily will finally know what, what the heck it's all about. Uh, so we'll finally know what the heck it's all about. Know. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm, <laughs> it's it's a fun project. Um, I'm, I'm really Be excited careful. about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Be careful how. Oh, it's the most dangerous book ever written. I mean, come on. I thought it was the greatest story ever told. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Emily. Is, so my partner is an atheist, and so he like says the same kind of shit. <laughs> That's great. I absolutely love it. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying what people say. Oh, no, I love it. Oh, totally. Now we've we've been training her. Anyway, in that conversation, though, uh, I think Dedeker was the one who made the point that she said, like, the interesting thing about the Bible is that it's both uh, a cultural piece, it's a historical piece, as well as a theological and, like, belief-related one, that it is kind of each of those. And I think kind of what you're getting at, J.D., is – is if we think that this whole document is just like this is how you should live your life, then we're going to get into some confusing territory and maybe make some, you know, we could read that and go, oh, I guess that means it's okay for this guy to do that and that women are defiled rather than realizing, oh, this is also a history and that this is also showing us what was happening in this culture at these various times throughout, you know, when it was written. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting, but I've, I've been thinking about that a lot of like thinking mm -hmm. of the Bible and putting it in place historically versus the way that at least I think the Bible is presented to a lot of us, especially when, when we're children growing up Christian, or at least it was for me or like to, you know, outsiders like Emily, where it's sort of outsiders. like, this is the book that has all the answers, right? That this is, this shows you how to live your life. I oh, think this that's is the instruction manual. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And it's funny because there are other religious teachings like writings by Siddhartha and stuff that are more of an instruction manual. Mm. Uh, so I think it can be really misleading because we think the Bible must be that same sort of guidebook mm. of like this. I saw is... both of you like shaking your head at that. So what was that about? Um, all of it. <laughs> um, it's, it's, um, it's incredibly complicated. I mean, even, and I shook my head no a little bit at one point, but mostly yes, but the no to the, it being a complicated document, it is not one document. It is a library of right. things that were, um, right. well, stories that were told without being written down for a long period of time, but written, but told and written down over a, by multiple authors over a period of centuries. So it's it's not a cohesive document, and in fact, it's often in dialogue with itself. But or if you talk about it as a whole, because an individual author is referring to something that a previous author said, but that they might have some disagreement with, and they get mm. into other details. So it's it is a it's a it's very complex, and each of the different pieces has its own context and um, and background that have from periods that we don't have a whole lot of sociological 
and anthropological information, but what we do have is helpful in getting is getting at what more is going on. But if you look at it as a guidebook and like this is an instruction manual, um, that's scary because I mean, just to use the story of Dina that uh, JD was bringing up, her brothers get revenge by forcing all of the the whole city that the rapist came from and all of his servants um, to like basically come into their family and which means they need to become Jewish. So they insist that they all have circumcisions as adults. And so I'm, I'm waiting for Emily's face on this. Um, and <laughs> Emily, I told you there's not, there are many instances of mass circumcision in the Bible. I told <laughs> you about that. And so then they, they forced a mass circumcision on them. And then while they're recovering from the surgery, they come in and kill all of them. Um, yeah. Well, so while, they, while they're all wedding un- part two, or I guess <laughs> yeah, part, part one. one. So, <laughs> you know, so if you read the Bible as an instruction manual, that would say, well, your sister gets raped, so you go and kill the rapist and everybody else that's in close proximity to that person. But like, first it's, circumcise them. Like, it's like, yeah. It, it, yeah. we're looking at broad stroke, um, broad strokes rather than fine points, and it does help yeah. us. It, it is a very useful guide, um, but it is not an instruction manual. It helps us think about the complexities of how humans have been fucked up for centuries Mm. and the damages and, um, and people navigating people around them being awful to them and trying to figure out how to scrap and survive. Um, It's a story of people who were colonized or it's multiple stories of people who were colonized Mm. grappling with what it means to relate to their colonizers. Mm. Um, So many things that are rich, but like not like universally applicable. And that's what most of our lives are like. And so if we look at the Bible as people who were struggling with their faith as we do in ways that happen that have some universal human elements to them, that we, we aren't just going through everything new ourselves, um, but we see their context and we see our own and we have to figure out how do we live in love um, based on where we are and based on the examples. Can we learn from other people's lessons is actually a lot of, <laughs> a lot of what the Bible yes. is about. Um, wow. And that's how I prefer to live my life. Is like I'd rather see somebody else make a mistake and not have to make it myself. Um, but human nature usually means we do need to fuck up in our own ways as well. So it just um, and so it's a constant work of recovery and re um, and um, and that's where the the apologies and um, atonement and grace um, come in. It's where confession and Christian worship. For some people, it feels like oh, it means that we're telling. We're having we're being forced to talk about how bad we are. It's like we know we've got our problems. I see it as a ritual that enables us to recognize that we can be forgiven, um, not that we have to find ways to feel bad about ourselves, but to, mm. to let go of the things that we already feel bad about. Um, and I'm riffing on multiple tangents here, and I'm sorry about that. But I um, <laughs> but I'm seeing some nodding, and I hope that that's useful. Yeah, no, I I so appreciate both of you saying all of this because, again, from an outsider's perspective what I know about Christianity is just that like, you know, it's, it's evangelical and that you're supposed to abide by what this book says. And, you know, in just the very little that I've read of it, which now has been more than I ever have before because of Jason (laughs) Deniger, but it just seems like a lot of stories and, and some of them not very well written. And so I'm just like, what, you know, obvious, some, some of them, (laughs) <laughs> hey, most people start Only out because... reading the Bible trying to get through Genesis, and then you can't get past the begat after begat after so and so begat. Oh so yeah, just that, that's just that. like, yes, we're getting that. through. That's yeah. that's why is, I say that. Yeah. That's goodness. Not not great prose. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, but but I so appreciate that there can be all these different viewpoints, and still within like the context of faith and the context of God, and this being an important thing. 
but mm-hmm. still that like there are a lot there's a lot of leeway i guess like more so than i previously thought mm-hmm. um and that uh something that jason dedeker both said to me is that there's like a need for uh community and for mm-hmm. um even if you're not like practicing religion it seems like there is like a need for community and that space still and obviously like we we still know people who are polyamorous who also um are religious and so from that like i was just wondering like can you do you have any advice that you can give someone who considers themselves mm-hmm. still christian um and they might still go to church but they are also polyamorous and like you know, there's all these things out there like stigma and, and misunderstanding and backlash, um, and that may potentially come from their community. But is it still possible for someone who's religious to um, to come out as polyamorous, or do you think that they're just going to have a really difficult time doing that? Do you have any, like, good advice for them? <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. Um, at least so my experience, so when I came out, as polyamorous to um, the church leaders, like people that made sense to talk to them about. Um, I think some of my youth know that I'm polyamorous um, by, because they ask questions and that's fine. Um, and I, I would say a lot of people are totally okay, but it's the church, like at least the pastors sometimes, um, they, they um, well, I think they are open um, I think they're worried about the replications rep- it'll have on the church, the ministry, etc. You know, the reputation, um, specifically, specifically if you're leadership in the mm-hmm. church. Um, so I would say it hasn't, at least for me, it hasn't been that positive. But, I mean, I still have a job, so I think that's mm-hmm. a good sign. You know what I mean? Um, there is, if I was go, trying to be a pastor, right? at this seminary I'm at and I was openly polyamorous, there would be a good chance. So there's this thing called a candidacy committee in the Lutheran church. There's a good chance that somebody would tell the candidacy committee and they'd grill me about it and they'd be like, well, I'm sorry. It doesn't meet up to so that this document called guidelines and expectations. It's kind of the rules for pastors and um, quote unquote roster leaders, they call it. And so it, it, if your leadership in the church I think it's really hard, um, especially if you're going to be a, if you're a pastor. Um, I don't. Good luck, I guess, is honestly what I would say. Um, but if you are just trying to practice your religion, I think there are um, some churches um, that are totally fine um, with lay people with that's uh, with just regular old church mm-hmm. folk um, being polyamorous. Um, I mean, obviously, that to be a liberal church. Um, if a church is like openly for gay and queer folk, my guess is that you probably won't have that much pushback on polyamory. Um, But if you start trying to become a leader, X, Y, Z, you might still have problems, but that's at least my experience. Yeah. Um, And I would say it's really going to vary very much by congregation. Um, and yeah, what yeah. the situation and, and what the, the local situation is, is and people will have to figure out their own setting for themselves about whether a space is safe or not it's there's not a, a clear prescription that we can give but I, I wouldn't try to come out as polyam uh, if 
if I was a person looking for a church, it was polyamorous. I wouldn't come out of polyam as um, at a church that wasn't already welcoming, explicitly welcoming of LGBTQIA yeah. folks. Um, and and especially if they don't ordain women ministers. Um, and th- there, there are clues that you can look at as to how open a congregation might be. Um, if you're looking for a new uh, for a new congregation, um, then they, you can start to look for those things and and have a side conversation with the pastor to see whether this is a safe place for you to, to come in. But if you're already locked in in a congregation and you feel like that is your home community and you don't know whether you want to or not, I would probably recommend trying to find a small group of allies, maybe even have hmm. um, a study group together where you can create a little subsection of the church that is open, more so than just kind of jumping out and um, scaring everybody's grandma, for example. Like it's like people hmm. are, it, 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 are you figure out how much you can um, shift the system from within and whether you're just going to be beating your head against the wall. But, um, but, um, and in some cases it might just mean you do have to find another church and, and that's unfortunate and it's, but there are people who had to read, leave churches for worse reasons than this. Yeah. 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 I'm there's a, I know there's a specific site and I'm, I'm not finding it specifically in my Google searches now, but it seems like there's a lot of similar sites. Um, there are databases where you can search mm-hmm. for churches kind of based on how LGBTQI friendly mm-hmm. they are. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I know that the particular database I'm thinking of, it will even like kind of, you know, it'll reference like, you know, this is kind of the language used on the church website. And that's why we think that they're very mm-hmm. pro LGBT or they specifically, you know, say something about ordaining women ministers or whatever. So there are a number of search engines out there um to find this kind of thing if you're if you're specifically trying to find a church yeah i imagine with with google these days you could probably find yeah you know find some resources around you right um you know maybe you'd have to drive a little further to go to church now than you used to but um but hopefully that would be worth it and we've we've actually said similar things if you're in parts of the country where it's hard to find like a polyamory meetup or something like that Mm -hmm. that it's worth it if you have to drive a few hours even to have mm-hmm. some kind of community maybe once a month or every couple months or just something to actually have a little bit of time where you can talk without constantly having to monitor what am I saying? Am I giving myself away? You know, am I going to say something that I'm going to regret? To like have that opportunity mm-hmm. to do that even just for a little while is so important. Yeah. And so I could see with with a church that being very similar where it's like, you know, it's worth it to drive a little further even if it means you don't go quite as often. I could see that really being worth it to be in a space where you can really get the support, you know, that, that you need for your own growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for being here. Uh, I feel like we could just do, we could do a whole new podcast where we just talk just about talk this about stuff yeah. for, you know, every week yeah. for an hour. Uh, but thank you so much for, for coming and talking to us about all of this. It's, it's been awesome. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was great to talk with you guys. Gosh, that was amazing. I, again, my mind is blown. Um, (laughs) There was was so much to learn there. Uh, For for those of you out there who really, you know, this isn't like second nature because you haven't been indoctrinated with the Bible like for years and years and years, it's it's lovely to... um, to just get some amazing perspectives from these two lovely people that we just talked to. So we really appreciate you being on the show. Um, and if you would like to get in touch with us, send an email to info at multiamory.com or send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. 
You can also leave us a voicemail at 678-M-U-L-T-I-05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. To support our show and join our private Facebook community, go to patreon.com slash multiamory. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedica Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.